Luke 7, verses 18 to 35. The first section is verses 18 to 23. Luke 7, 18. And the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is coming, or do we look for someone else? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is coming, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And, and then in the next section, he's going to compare his message to John the Baptist. And basically, it's the same message. And he's going to complain that the scribes and the Pharisees don't receive it, no matter what uh, the messenger is or who the messenger is. It's the same message, but the problem resides with them, not in the message or the messenger. So what we have in this section is a transition from the preceding ones where he has, Jesus has performed miracles. His fame has spread throughout the land. Many people are curious and interested, and many of them have been healed of diseases. And the last two incidents were one of a Jewish widow, the preceding one, in Luke 7, 11 to 17, and in the previous passage, in the first part of Luke, Luke 7, 2 to 10, or 1 to 10, it was a Gentile man and a centurion and his slave. Um, the slave was healed and the centurion was a believer. So, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, a widow or a centurion, a Roman soldier, a commander, the gospel is for everybody. And many people heard that gospel. So then nat naturally, when many people hear the gospel, either through Jesus or John the Baptist, people need to know that it's for everybody, that's one, but also there's a dilemma that arises. John is the most prominent of all the prophets. He is the highest of all the prophets because he's the forerunner of Christ. He's the one who actually announces the arrival of Christ. And what happens in this section, in verses 18 to 23, the, the question that John asks has to do not with John's lack of faith. Some interpreters think that John lacks faith, and that's why he's asking, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Or should we look for someone else? The question is not for John's benefit. The question is actually for his disciples' benefit, because he's about to be executed, and there needs to be a transition from them following John as John preached Christ. And they need to now follow Christ and know that they need to look to Christ. This is what John had been preaching all along, to look to Christ and focus on Christ. But when he dies, there's naturally going to be some disillusionment. There's going to be some disarray. And the disciples of John need to know that they need to follow Christ. So this is what he's doing. He's preparing them for that. Look at verse 18. And the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. They saw, they heard, they experienced and witnessed whatever miracles Jesus performed and whatever Jesus preached. 
and they're reporting it to John. Naturally, when that happens, John has a platform to say something about it, and in fact, to keep pointing people to Jesus. He said earlier, like in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He said things like that. And he was preaching Christ and Christ as the Lamb to die for their sins. He's been doing all of that. So he's going to continue doing that just before he dies. And so, verse 19, And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, He summoned two of them, because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. 2 Corinthians 13, 1. And when there are two witnesses who go and hear what Jesus says, they can come back and report, not for John's benefit, but for the sake of presenting it and distributing this message from Christ to the rest of John's disciples. Two witnesses. So, the question is, are you the one who is coming or do we look for someone else? Are you the one? John had preached that he is the one. And he had preached that in harmony with the Old Testament. Moses in Genesis 49.10, this is actually first Jacob announcing it to his sons, to Judah specifically, that Shiloh will come. He says, until Shiloh comes. That's a messianic prophecy. Another name for Jesus is Shiloh. And he mentions there that Shiloh comes. In Ezekiel 21, 27, until he comes, whose right it is, and it will be given to him. The one who's coming, Ezekiel even preached him. And Habakkuk as well says, behold, the, the coming one is coming. He preached like that, like that too, Habakkuk. So Moses, Ezekiel, and Habakkuk, they all preached this. John the Baptist preached it as well. The coming one, Christ, the expected one, he's coming, and this is who he is. But now, to confirm it and affirm it to the disciples of John, he asks this, Are you the coming one, or do we look for someone else? This is a, a very important question. Are we to put our faith and our confidence in Christ and Christ alone, or somebody else? Many people, the vast majority of the people in the world, and even within Christendom, will say, that Christ can be added to another belief. Christ can be added to another God. Christ can be added to another philosophy. But they won't say Christ alone. They won't say exclusively Christ. They will point the finger in many directions and say all of these roads will lead to Rome. But here Jesus is going to affirm that no, it's found in Him and there is plenty of tangible Evidence. There's plenty of physical evidence that Christ alone is worthy of faith. Verse 20, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent to you, saying, Are you the one who is coming, or do we look for someone else? They come and they conveyed the very message that they were called on to convey. And that is, to ask this question, Are you the one who is coming, or do we look for someone else? They note here John the Baptist because there were many people called John and even in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are uh, several Johns. There is John the son of Zebedee, James and, and John the sons of Zebedee. Um, and in this case, there is John the Baptist. The Baptist because he's the one 
who established baptism and he's the one that preached it and he's the one that called people to go into the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan River. So he's identified like this. So he has prominence, John the Baptist. He has that prominence. And so how is it that we're supposed to take him? Should we believe in him? Or should we believe in the one he was preaching? Or should we believe in somebody else? This is their question. Since he had a large following with this baptism. So, verse 21. Luke tells us, At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. So, at that time that they came, these things were happening. We already know this from the preceding narrative, that many of these miracles were happening, and more miracles are happening while Jesus is there and these messengers approach. So there is plenty, ample evidence that Jesus has these miraculous powers and that the Messiah, we will see in a minute, that the Messiah was to perform all these miracles because the prophet Isaiah predicted all of this. Verse 22, And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go and report. You are two witnesses, and what you have seen and heard, you have seen and heard all of these things, you know that these things have actually happened. So nothing is fic uh, fictional, nothing is mythological, nothing is hearsay and second, third-hand information. You are eyewitnesses. This is first-hand information, facts, you know that these have happened. You know who, who the healed people are. You know all of this has happened. So go and ask them. Go verify it with them. Not, nothing of Christianity is mythological and fictional. Everything that is in our faith is founded on fact. We have faith in facts. We don't have faith in fictions. If we have faith in fictions, we are insane. That's what people who are beside themselves do, don't they? They believe in things that aren't true. They're so giddy and fanatical about things that aren't true, and they think they're true. But they're not true. They put faith in fiction. But that's not the way Christianity is. We put faith in facts, in things that have actually occurred in history. That's what Jesus is saying here. He performed all of these miracles, and He preached the gospel. He preached the gospel to the poor, poor in spirit, and also many poor in uh, wealth. He preached to them, and they are the ones that believed. Isaiah predicted that this would happen in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, and Isaiah 61, 1. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. We see here, 700 years before the ministry of Christ, Isaiah the prophet preached this. And we know Isaiah reiterates again and again from chapters 40 to 48 of his book, Isaiah 40 to 48, again and again, that there is only one true and living God, one Savior, and this one God tells us things in advance so that we believe in His Word and not trust in idols. We should not trust idols, but trust in Him because He predicts the future and makes the future happen as He predicts. Isaiah 35.5 is an example. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. 
This is a prophecy of what Messiah will do, of what Christ will do. Isaiah 61, 1 is another place. 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And this was quoted by Jesus in Luke chapter 4. We might recall in a previous study in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and following, 16 to 30, Jesus quoted this passage in Isaiah 61 and said that it's fulfilled in Him. It's fulfilled in Him. So, these are evidences. We have the prophet Isaiah. We have contemporaries. We have all of this evidence corroborating itself and showing that Jesus is indeed the coming one, the Christ. So, these disciples of John have a confirmation. All of the evidence is out there. All of the evidence is presented to them. They have no room to doubt. And if they do doubt, it's their own fault. The disciples of John. And we'll see in the next passage, if they do doubt, it's their own fault. The scribes and the Pharisees. It's their own fault. And that's what Jesus means in verse 23. Luke 7, 23. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me or takes offense at me. Blessed is he who does not do that. And what would prevent one from doing that? That would be if one believed, if one repented of sin, if one trusted in him as Lord and Savior. This concept that Jesus is someone to stumble over, either to believe in and be blessed or to stumble over and be cursed, is found repeatedly throughout the Bible, even in Luke. Look at Luke chapter 20, Luke 20, verse 17. 20, 17. But he looked at them, his opponents, and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. He cited... Psalm 118, verse 22, to his opponents, the stone which the builders rejected, the leaders, the prominent people of the nation, the religious officials, these are the builders of the nation. They're supposed to build properly, but they reject a precious cornerstone. They stumbled over the stone. Because they stumbled over it, they just kicked it aside and said, it's useless and I don't want to use it for the building. When actually it was the stone they should have used as the cornerstone. This is what is meant in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. The Apostle Peter will cite a couple of passages to describe how Jesus is received or rejected. 1 Peter 2 4. And coming to him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Quoting Isaiah 28:16. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. 
But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Psalm 118.22 And verse 8, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 8.14 For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. If one believes in the cornerstone, then he will not be disappointed or put to shame. He will have salvation. But there are some who believe, yet there are others who disbelieve, and these are the builders who reject the cornerstone, and these are the ones, in addition to the builders, anybody who thinks of Jesus as an offense, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If they believe then he is a choice and precious cornerstone for them. If they disbelieve, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And this is what Jesus means in Luke 7, 23. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. You have everything presented to you. You should not reject it. There's no excuse to reject it. All the evidence is there. If it is rejected, it's the fault of the hearer because he had a hard, stubborn, proud heart. It's not the fault of the messenger or of the message or of God who sent the messenger and the message. It's not the fault of anyone but the hearer who stumbled over Christ. Now, this is a common problem, we know, is it not? It's, the problem is that people do not look to Christ in the proper way. And when they do see Christ presented and preached properly, a Savior of sinners... When they hear that, they are repulsed by it. They don't like it at all. They don't want to consider themselves sinners because they're too proud. They're too proud and arrogant. They're, they're smug in their own works, in their own goodness, and they think they are better and wiser than God. But that's not what Christ says. Christ says you have to consider Him for who He really is and why He came into the world to die for our sins. We need to believe in it, and if we believe in it, we'll be blessed, and we won't stumble over him. Verse 24. And when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, 
Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Well, after the messengers of John left, he addresses John and who he was and and his character. He addresses that. Now, he does so perhaps because he could have been taken to be flattering John in the presence of the messengers of John, and they may have walked away doubting and wondering. We know Christ would never do that, and we know that he was one without deceit. He would tell the truth and speak forthrightly about whatever it was, but sometimes people mistake him and think that he is saying one thing when he's not and doing another thing when he's not. So this is perhaps why he addresses the multitudes, but it's also an occasion to address the multitudes because the multitudes at least many of them, they did respond properly, and he's confirming their faith. You see, when the multitudes are believing, and after time passes, they see that the prominent people, the wealthy people, the people of power, the men of power, the ones who are knowledgeable, the ones who are wise according to the wisdom of this world, academically wise, when these people don't believe, the multitudes could be disheartened. And they might be bewildered and wonder, am I really doing the the right thing? Why is it that all these other people who should know that this is the Christ, why is it that they're not believing? What's wrong? What's going on? Well, Jesus wants to confirm that they are truly believing the faith, the faith that they should believe in the gospel of Christ. And he wants to make a distinction and say why it is that the Pharisees and the lawyers are not believing. He's trying to make a distinction and clarify so that the multitudes don't reject Christ. He said, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? Verse 24. A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see someone or something insignificant? Did you go out there just to see a reed shaken by the wind? No, they didn't go out there for something insignificant. They knew someone of significance was there. But was it somebody of material significance, of earthly significance? Verse 25, But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. They didn't go out there for that reason either. They're not going to find a king or any of his officials in the wilderness. They're not going to find that. They're going to find those who are splendidly attired living in royal palaces. They're going to find them in the cities, in the palaces, in the fortresses. They're going to find them in those kinds of places. They're not going to find them in the wilderness. So, he's calling attention to why they really went out there and confirming that they went out there for the right purpose. They didn't go out there for something insignificant, and then then they didn't go out there for something significant in a worldly and earthly sense. No. They went out there because they went for spiritual significance. Verse 26. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. So he confirms their motive. Yes. I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. John the Baptist was indeed a prophet. He was a prophet because he predicted the future. He predicted the future and he proclaimed repentance. These are two aspects of what prophets do. They Proclaim the future. You must believe in the gospel or you will be judged on the day of judgment. Repent of your sins and bear fruit 
in keeping with repentance. This is characteristic of what prophets do. He's also a prophet in that he predicted that Christ would come and he would do this or that. He would die on the cross, for example. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He predicted that. So he was a prophet in those ways. Just as Isaiah predicted that Jesus would die on the cross, Isaiah 53. Just as David predicted that Jesus would die on the cross, Psalm 16 and Psalm 22. John did the same. But he's more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet because of verse 27. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is a citation from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi 3, 1. Malachi the prophet who lived at least 400, if not 500 years before the ministry of Christ, he too predicted that Christ would come. And he predicted that there would be a messenger who would precede and be a forerunner to Christ. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. My messenger, the Father speaks and says of John the Baptist that he is my messenger, and he is speaking to his son and saying, Before your face, before your arrival, he's going to prepare your way before you. The Father speaking to the Son and speaking of John the Baptist. And Jesus cites this passage, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now, we might think and wonder, are all of these passages really messianic? Or did Jesus and the apostles and somebody else make up all this about Messiah and all that? The answer is no. In fact, the Jews, the Jews, believing and unbelieving, they have a saying that all the prophets did not prophesy but to or of the days of the Messiah. That is, they believed that the prophets, from Moses to Malachi, all the prophets of the Old Testament, they didn't talk about anything substantial, anything significant, except the days of Messiah. They all kept preaching Messiah, 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 Messiah. So it should be no surprise that Isaiah speaks of Messiah, David speaks of Messiah, Malachi speaks of Messiah, all the prophets speak of Messiah. The Jews, even unbelieving Jews, believe that. The problem was that the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day and since Jesus' day, and even before Jesus' day, they did not believe it was Jesus of Nazareth who was the Messiah, the Christ. That's why we as Christians call him Jesus Christ. The Bible calls him that. And that's why we call him Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus, any Jesus, and not just Christ, meaning somebody who's uh, fic fictional or, or a phantom, or it could be any person, it doesn't matter, or it could be just a period of time, because some Jews, very liberal Jews, believe there is no person who's Christ, but it's a period of time when there's a millennial golden age in the future that God brings upon the earth, that that's what Messiah is, or that's what Christ is. No, it's a person. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That was the problem with the Jews throughout history. And that's also the problem of the Jews in Jesus' time. They don't believe that Jesus is that. Verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
Why is it that no one born of women is greater than John? Because John was the forerunner of Christ. All the other prophets were great men, no doubt. But they weren't the ones who were actually there. They didn't baptize Christ, like Matthew 3, 13 to 17. They didn't baptize Christ. John the Baptist did. And John knew he was unworthy to do so. He says, I have need to be baptized by you. And do I baptize you? Are you asking me to baptize you? He knew he was unworthy, but none of the other prophets baptized him. None of the other prophets were eminently close to Christ the way John the Baptist was. He was. And that's why he was the greatest of all the prophets. However, he says, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is a perplexing statement. The commentators are very perplexed about what to do with this. There's many interpretations. I think that perhaps one of two is a valid interpretation. And that is, he who is uh, least in the kingdom of God is greater than he may mean the one who is in heaven and in the presence of God, released from this world and all the sufferings of this world. He has already believed in Christ and he is experiencing the fullness of salvation in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is near and he's very imminently close to Christ in many ways here on the earth, but the one in heaven is greater because he has the full experience of the benefits of Christ's salvation. The other interpretation is to take this as one who now has believed and seen all that Christ has done, the death, burial, ascension of Christ, and has now proclaimed it as already done. Some interpreters take it that way, that since the gospel has already been accomplished, Christ has come, we have, in a sense, a greater message in that we don't look at Christ through types and shadows and illustrations. We look at Christ through what He has already accomplished. He has already finished redemption, and now we can announce it as being passed and accomplished. Verse 29. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The tax collectors and the people, the common people, they realized what Jesus was saying. They realized that they believed in the right message, in the message of John the Baptist, and that John the Baptist was preaching Christ. And they knew that this was a matter of God's justice or God's righteousness that this was God's righteous way of vindicating them, elevating them, giving them salvation, which is found in Christ, and the message of John and the message of Christ are one and the same. They acknowledge that they, those who were lowly, they who had nothing in this world, they who put their trust in Christ in His death and resurrection, that this is God's justice. This is the way God elevates them and justifies them and makes them worthy to enter into the kingdom of God. Not worthy because of their own goodness, not worthy because of who they are, nothing like that, but because they are in Christ. They are found in Christ. And they were baptized by John. They understood John's baptism. Acts 19.4 tells us the purpose of John's baptism. Acts 19.4, the Apostle Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. He baptized the baptism of repentance, telling the people, 
That's what we have here. All the people in the tax collectors. All the people telling them to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. They rejoiced in that. And they acknowledged God's justice and righteousness. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. The Pharisees, these are the men who had the power and authority. They had the wealth. They had the power to influence the people on religious matters. And the lawyers too. The lawyers and the scribes, experts of the Mosaic Law, these are the ones who also could give fine interpretations and explanations. They were the ones who knew a lot of the facts of the Old Testament and could explain that and teach that to the people. These people who had factual knowledge, mere factual knowledge, it did not benefit them because they had pride. They thought they were great people. They thought they were sufficient in themselves. They thought they, they could work for their salvation. They thought they were good and performed good works and God would be pleased with their own righteousness and their own good works. They rejected God's purpose or God's counsel for themselves. God told them, too, to repent of sin. Not many of them repented. There were a few who did, but not many of them re repented. Many of them rejected the message of the gospel because they trusted in themselves rather than in God and God's way. They were unwilling to say that they were sinners. The people, the tax collectors, they were willing to say that, but not them. Luke reiterates this point in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, we have this parable. Luke 18, 9, the parable of the Pharisee and the, and the publican or tax collector. Luke 18, 9, And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Here, clearly, Christ says that the tax collector who's repentant, who knows that he needs the mercy of God, he knows that he is a sinner, he is the one who needs God's forgiveness. He's the one who goes home justified. This is why the, the people and the tax collectors acknowledge God's justice. They understood. But the Pharisees and the tax collectors I'm sorry, Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes, these are the ones who rejected God's purpose. They knew clearly what was being preached by John. John did not mince words. Jesus did not mince words either. And yet they rejected those words because of their pride. 31. So Jesus compares and contrasts who they are. 
To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? Notice how he calls them the men of this generation. Even the Jews have an expression. The men of this generation, they acknowledge to be worldly people. But then they have another phrase, the men of that generation, meaning the future, the heavenly generation. They are different and godly. They know what Jesus is talking about. They, and Jesus is using an expression that's common among them. And he says, what are they like? 32. They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking but, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children." These children in the marketplace, they're compared. They, they don't respond to the flute to dance, and they don't respond to the dirge, the sad song for a funeral, and they don't weep. They're neither happy nor do they cry. Nothing motivates them, nothing prods them along to do what they're supposed to do according to the context. They're not happy. So they won't follow Christ, who came eating and drinking. They won't do that. And they're not sad either. They're not austere either, like John the Baptist, because there is a time to be austere, such as when there's a funeral, when somebody dies. People don't usually feel like eating. So they don't, they don't do that either. John the Baptist did that, but they won't do that. John the Baptist was, was eating locusts and wild honey. That's what he ate. That, that was his regular diet out there in the wilderness. He lived that way, and they weren't attracted to that. Jesus lived a normal, regular life, eating meat and drinking wine. He did that. They wouldn't tolerate that either. And he did that in, with the tax collectors and sinners. John the Baptist did that alone. Jesus did that in the company of others. John the Baptist was, in a sense, a loner, not in a negative sense, but in a sense he was a loner, but Jesus was sociable. He mingled with people, he even went to weddings. He even went to Pharisees' houses. In the next section, in Luke 7, 36 to 50, he goes to the house of a Pharisee to eat with that Pharisee. So he goes and he eats with people. He's trying to bring people through that means, which is a regular and, and valid means. Now, Jesus was not getting drunk, and he was not a, a glutton, but they accused him of that. If he were to be a drunkard and a glutton, then that would be sin, and he would have been a sinner. They're just accusing him. They're lobbing that insult against him, which would not have been true. It was not true. Neither was it true that John the Baptist, because he withheld from eating regular food, that he was a demonized man. He didn't have a demon. He was no uh, such man. He was a sane man. And what does Jesus teach by this? Jesus is teaching that the messenger is not the problem. The message is not the problem. The problem is in the hearer. The hearer who is proud, who holds himself to be righteous and holds others in contempt. This is the problem. This is the problem with the people. And in this case, primarily the Pharisees and the lawyers. They are the ones who do not want to believe. 
There's nothing you can do for them. There's not another miracle you can perform. There's not another way you can say it. There's not another method you could practice. There's not more sugar you can present. There's not even the withholding of sugar in the message. Nothing is going to help them. Nothing is going to help them because the problem is in their own heart, their own stubborn and hard heart. They won't take it. They are fault finders. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage, as Jude says. That's their problem. But then Jesus says in 35, Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is another curious statement he makes, Jesus makes. I think that the best way to take him is that wisdom, if it is valid and true and good wisdom, if it is honorable wisdom, it will show by those who adhere to that wisdom. So it will be evident in the life of the person whether he is following the true wisdom or not. So, it will speak for itself. Eventually, the good deeds or the fruit of the Spirit will manifest itself in one person or another. And then you will know who's got the true wisdom, who's got the wisdom of God, who was following the way that they should follow. Let's see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul brings the same truth to bear when he's addressing the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have a couple of places in, in chapter 1 and then also in chapter 2 to look at. Now, Paul also had to deal with division and contention. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say that you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. What's the problem the Corinthians are facing? It's the same problem that John's disciples face. That is, divisiveness, factionalism. That they had their favorite preacher or teacher and they were clinging to that person instead of clinging to Christ. John drove people to Christ. Paul here saying, I'm driving people to Christ. That's what we should do. Then the next problem. The next problem is that there are people who believe among Jews and Gentiles, but then the people who believe among Jews and Gentiles, they are perplexed that the prominent people of the world don't believe. Why is it that the people 
that are kings? Why is it that the people who are the teachers of the Bible, the pastors and the clergymen of the world, why is it that they don't believe like we believe? Why is it that they live a different kind of life? Why is it that they preach a different kind of gospel? Are they believers or not? Have I believed the right message or not? Verse 26. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord." Boast in the Lord. We should boast in Him and not be perplexed and disillusioned that the noble people of the world, the mighty people of the world, the wise people of the world don't believe. Don't let that bother us. Because God has chosen for we who don't have very much resources, we who do not live in luxury, we who do not have all the education in the world, we who do not have positions of authority in government or in religion or in, the, in academia, we who do not have those high and mighty uh, uh, fanfare kind of positions, we don't have those kinds of positions, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it because God's not about that. God's about saving people who believe in Christ by God's own doing and then we have righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and true wisdom. Because we boast in the Lord. We don't boast in our position. We don't boast in our degrees. We don't boast in our wealth. We don't boast in our influence. We don't boast in our notoriety. We don't boast in anything like that. We boast in the Lord. That's what Jesus was teaching the multitudes. And finally, I think we can learn, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. We need to know that the true gospel is preaching Christ. It's preaching Christ whatever the consequence, whether there's a blessing that results or a curse that results, the true gospel is preaching Christ. And that's what will show whether people are believers or unbelievers. It's not preaching the preacher. It's not preaching something else, some other philosophy or religion. It's preaching Christ. The pulpits of the world must preach Christ. If they're not preaching Christ, they're not preaching the true gospel. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my pre preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul's goal was to preach Christ and Christ crucified, that the faith of the hearers should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. God's powerful wisdom is what he desired to preach, which is only in Christ. These days we hear psychology, we hear sports, we hear politics, we hear personal anecdotes. We sometimes know more about the preacher's family than we know about Jesus Christ and him. 
and his family. This is what goes on in many of the pulpits of the world. But that's not what Paul said. He says, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The preacher should not be talking about himself. He should be talking about Christ and preaching Christ from the word of Christ. This is what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the multitudes, do not trust and do not be anxious and worried about the Pharisees and the lawyers. And do not cause divisions among yourselves. Believe in this true message and believe in Christ. He is the gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.